It was uh, cold. So very, very cold. The German soldiers were entrenched on the eastern side, and the British soldiers were entrenched just about 100 feet away on the western side. And it was December 1914. World War I was raging at this time. It had been going on for about eight months, and everybody sort of thought that the war would be over by Christmas, but little did they know it was just getting started. And it was one of those moments where on Christmas Eve, the shooting sort of came to a stop for a few hours. Nobody really knew why, it just happened. And then shortly after, the British soldiers could see lights glowing from the German trenches. They didn't know why at the time. And then out of the stillness in that cold, crisp night where a fresh snow had just covered the muddy trenches, out of the stillness of the night came a melody, a very familiar melody from the German trenches. The British soldiers' ears perked up and they began to listen as a single German soldier began to sing a Christmas carol. Well, at the end of the Christmas carol, the British soldiers decided to respond with a song of their own. They responded with a song called, God Save the King. And then the German soldiers sang a Christmas carol back. And for a few moments, they were singing Christmas carols back and forth to each other in what was the middle of World War I, middle of battle. Listen to the quote of... Uh, of private, uh, his name was uh, Private Graham Williams of the 5th London Rifle Brigade. He said, first the Germans would sing one of their carols and then we would sing one of ours until we started up, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful, and the Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn with us. And I thought, well, this is a really most extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. <laughs> and then one German soldier shouted out, You know, shoot! We know shoot. And to that, a British soldier lifted his head out of the trench bravely and stepped out of the trench into the space between the two trenches. And then out came a few German soldiers and they laid their rifles down. And for the next six days, one of the most amazing things in the history of mankind occurred. An unspoken, unofficial Christmas truce in the middle of World War I. And it spread along the trenches to the point that over 100,000 soldiers participated in this unofficial truce. They would meet in the middle and they would exchange handshakes and <laughs> hand grenades were replaced with their handshakes and, and, and suddenly this field of battle had become a, a field of brotherhood and they would exchange cards and addresses and names and, and photographs of their loved ones and even got to the point where they were burying their own comrades dead. There was an epic soccer game. The Germans won three to two. There was bike races with no tires. There was all kinds of stuff that, that went on and it is known throughout history now as the truce, the unofficial Christmas truce of World War I. Oh, and by the way, that familiar refrain that started the whole thing, O Holy Night. The German soldier was singing, O Holy Night. 
It's always been my favorite Christmas carol. It's the only song I've ever recorded three different times on three different Christmas records. <laughs> it's my favorite Christmas song. I asked Scott if they would do that song before I spoke this morning because this message today, as we've been doing this sermon series called Sing Noel, we're taking an old Christmas carol each and every week and sort of dis exploring the, the lyrics of that song as it relates to the truth of Scripture and the Christmas story. And I chose O Holy Night because it's my favorite Christmas carol. But as I began to study the history of this song, I've been truly amazed at uh, just how God has used this song over the centuries, like that moment in World War I. There's many others, and I'll get to a few more here in just a moment. But the history of O Holy Night is fascinating in and of itself. It all started in 1847 when a local... Uh, French priest at St. John the Baptist Catholic Church in Roquemore. I think that's how you say it. Roquemore. I don't know how you say it in French, but the, it's a little southern town in France next to the Rhone River. All right. And this little, uh, this priest there, he wanted a new poem written for their, uh, their Christmas Eve midnight mass. And so he goes to a local poet by the name of Placide Capot. Mr. Capot was a local poet, pretty good poet, but he was also the local wine merchant. And this guy was not exactly known for being deeply in love with Jesus. I'll just put it that way, all right? But he was a pretty good poet. And so the Catholic priest thought, well, maybe I can kind of woo him back into the, into the church a little bit if I'll have him write this poem. Well... Placide Capot made frequent trips to Paris as a wine merchant, and so one day on December 3rd, 1847, he wrote this poem on a train trip up to France, up to Paris. Well, when he returned, he was so happy and, and really quite proud of this poem that he had written that he approached a friend of his right there in Rocamere. Uh, his name was Adolphe Adams, and he comes to Mr. Adams. He said, hey, I think we could make this a song. So he had entitled his poet Minuet Christian, which means uh, Midnight Christian, appropriately entitled because it was a midnight mass. He gives his poem to Adolphe Adams, and Adolphe was a fairly well-known composer and arranger at that time in that area. And he writes this beautiful melody, the melody that you just heard. He writes this beautiful melody, and they decide to call the song Cantique de Noël. Cantique de Noël. And so they performed this song for the very first time on Christmas Eve, 1847. And immediately, the local townspeople fall in love with this song. In fact, a lot of people in France began to hear this song. And they begin to sing it every Christmas around France. And people loved this melody. They loved the Cantique de Noël until one of the Catholic priests, one of the higher-ranking priests, decided that we shouldn't be using this song we shouldn't be using this song because <laughs> the guy who wrote the lyrics is now a socialist and he has denounced his faith. And the guy who wrote the melody is a Jewish man who doesn't even believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the Catholic Church banned the song, completely banned it. And here's the reasoning right here. I'll give you the quote. Because of its lack of musical taste and total absence of the spirit of religion. So they banned it. But the song was already popular among the locals and among the French people. Well, fast forward eight years to America. There was a Unitarian pastor, Harvard grad from the Harvard Divinity School. His name was John Sullivan Dwight. Mr. Dwight 
had some health issues. He's a wonderful man, but had a lot of health issues. And one of his issues was that every time he would get up to preach in his Unitarian church, he would have panic attacks. And he was unable to get to his messages. And so he had to step away from the pulpit. So to fill his time, he started a magazine that was devoted to exposing to the church brand new songs of the faith. And in his search for new songs, he runs across the Cantique de Noel. It was in French, of course. And so he does a translation of this old hymn. And here's why he loved it so much. Because of verse 3. Change shall he break, for the slave is our brother and all oppression shall cease those lyrics were mesmerizing to him because you see mr dwight lived in the northern part of the united states and was an abolitionist and he was very much for the freeing of the slaves and so he did an english translation of the cantique de noel and it is what we know today as O holy night so god took two outsiders of the church He took two people that were officially outcast from the church. He took a song that was outcast from the Catholic church. And then he takes a broken pastor from the Unitarian church and somehow, someway preserves this great song for us that we've sung now for 160 plus years. But that shouldn't surprise us, should it? I mean, isn't that just like God? God always seems to do the most amazing things through the most unlikely people and in the most unlikely circumstances. I mean, that's the story of Christmas itself, right? I mean, look at the genealogy of Christ himself. I mean, look at Matthew chapter 1 where Matthew gives us the genealogy of Christ. I mean, out of the genealogy of Christ comes Ruth, who was an immigrant, and then there was Rahab, who was a harlot, then David, he was an adulterer, then Solomon was a philanderer and a womanizer, and I mean, and on and on the list goes, and from there comes the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But look at the story of Christmas itself. I mean, God chose an an unknown couple, an unlikely virgin teenage girl in Mary, took them to an obscure little village called Bethlehem, There was an overcrowded inn, which resulted in the most humble of surroundings, a manger, under the most trying of times, Roman oppression, and revealed the biggest news of all to the lowliest of people, the shepherds, whose testimony wasn't even allowed in court because that's how low they were in society. Just like God to do that, isn't it? So the first thing I want you to look at with these lyrics as we just examine this song for a few moments is in the title itself, O Holy Night. So my first point to you this morning is very simple. In fact, this is a very simple message I have for you this morning. We're just gonna brag on Jesus for the next few moments, if that's okay with you. So the first point is simply this, he is holy. He is holy. Look at Luke chapter one, verse 35. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy one who is to be born will be called the Son of God. The word holy means to be set apart. And this night, above all nights, above all of the babies that have ever been born, by the way, did you know there's 250 babies born in this world every minute? That's over four per second. There's four more. Four more. Four more. I mean, 24 babies were just born in the time it took me to give you that sentence. It's amazing, isn't it? But what made this one so special? Well, because this one is not just a baby. 
This is the son of the living God. And he's set apart. This night split time in two. This night is the space between B.C. and A.D. And I think sometimes we tend to forget that this Jesus who was born in a manger has always been. He didn't just suddenly appear 2,000 years ago. No, 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 no. Jesus has always been. All right? He was there when God lit the sun. He was there when he said, let there be light. He was there when the stars were slung into space and God said, stay there. He was there when the moon began to shine. He was there for all of it. That's why I love what Louis Giglio says. He said, there's no such thing as B.C. There really isn't. B.C. is a fable. There was nothing before Christ. Christ has always been. He's always reigned supreme. He's always been king of kings and lord of lords. I like what the old pastor said. He was, is, 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 and always will be is. He just is. Amen? So Jesus is the embodiment of holiness itself. He's God wrapped in flesh. So you want to see what God looks like? Look at Jesus. He's perfectly whole and wholly perfect. Think of the most perfect thing that you can possibly imagine. He's more perfect than that. He is perfection personified. And his character is the very essence of righteousness and flawlessness and purity and love. And he never had a thought that was wrong or a, or a motive that was questionable. He was never created. Rather, he has always been. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. By the way, that includes you. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in all things he may have the preeminence. That's Jesus. Yes, he is a Christ child, but he is also God. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, which makes him omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. There's nothing he cannot see, nothing he cannot overcome, nothing he cannot do, nothing he's not created, and nothing he cannot defeat. He is great and awesome and worthy and mighty and excellent and incredible, indescribable, infallible, but his most incredible attribute of all is that he's holy. And right now, right now, all the angels in glory chant unceasingly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is his holiness, folks, that sets him apart from any other. And it is his holiness that makes him worthy of our praise. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. And for a brief moment in history, we have this privilege of witnessing all the holiness of God confined to flesh. Jesus was fully God and yet fully man at the same time. And he walked and talked among us and showed us how we can pursue a holy lives ourselves. Yes, this night was holy because the king of kings left his throne in glory and he humbled himself before us so that we might see the face of God. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 says, Let this mind be in you, 
which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in his appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So the space between a holy God and us as unholy beings was closed when this holy child was born in a lowly manger. And it was this child who would become our sacrificial savior. Look at Hebrews chapter seven, verse 26 and 27. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this, he died once for all when he offered up himself. In other words, back in those days, the these sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, were made by the high priest and the priest of the temple. Well, what the writer of Hebrews is simply saying here is no longer does Jesus make a sacrifice or need to as high priest because he's the sacrifice himself. He offered up himself as the ultimate sacrifice for you and me. So when you surrender your heart to him, he adopts you into his family, the family of God. And the space between God the Father and our unworthiness to stand before God the Father is bridged by the outstretched arms of the Holy Savior on an old rugged cross. Therefore, Philippians 2 says, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of, say his name with me, Jesus. Say it again. Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is holy. But you know what? Jesus is also here. He's holy and he's here. I love this line of the song, long lay the world in sin and error pining and then this word till he appeared. I like that until he appeared. I heard this story from Jerry Vines when I was in high school as a student in Jacksonville, Florida. I was part of his church and he told this story one Sunday morning. I never forgot it. It's a story about a young man who was walking around a modern arts museum. Have you ever been in a modern arts museum? Okay, there's some weird stuff in there. He's walking around in this modern arts museum and he stumbles across an exhibit that was featuring a particular artist there and the artist just happened to be there. And he's looking at one of these paintings and he's looking at this thing and it has these letters right across the front. It just says this, it says G-O-D-I-S-N-O-W-H-E-R-E. And he's looking at that and it's kind of placed against a chaotic background and so it was a little blurry and he's sort of staring at it like this. And the artist comes up behind the young man and he says, you see that son? You see what that says? God is nowhere. And the young man just kind of kept staring at him. He said, are you, are you sure? Because I think it says God is now here. To that, the artist was a bit offended and walked off. <laughs> but there's times in all of our lives when we might feel like God is nowhere. I mean, certainly in that time between Malachi and Matthew, 
there was a 400-year period where God was virtually silent. And I'm sure during that time, many people wondered, where has God gone? But the faith continued. There were families in the Jewish tradition that continued the faith, families like the Hasmoneans and the Maccabeans, and these people were still actively involved in following their, their Jewish roots and, and following the, the Judaic laws and, and, and really still worshiping the Lord, but God did not send a prophet. He, his voice was not heard. There was no biblical books written there in that time. It's called the intertestamental period, and it lasted 400 years. But the world didn't stop, did it? Oh, no, there was a lot happening in the world. I mean, this was the time of, uh, of the world where um, Alexander the Great came to power at the ripe old age of 19 years old. And then at 32 years old, having conquered most of the known world, at 32 years old, on June 11, 323 B.C., he died. And then many things happened after that. His kingdom was divided into four different places. And eventually, the Ptolemy Empire comes to power in, in Egypt, and from there came Cleopatra, of course. And then slowly but surely, the Romans rose to power. And it was the Romans who had risen to power as we began to get near to the birth of Christ. In fact, it was in 6 BC that they took over the Judean regions. And so just right before the, the, the birth of Christ, the Romans had taken over the, the, uh, the world of, of Judea. And of course, at that time, uh, Augustus had become Caesar and was absolute ruler. But all the while, it seemed like God was nowhere. Well, I promise you, God was not dead. He was just silent. And there's that space, that space between now and here. The time had now come, of all the times in history, when everything had lined up perfectly for the prophecies to be fulfilled. The time had now come for the father to send his, his son to earth. And he would arrive, of course, in an unmarked manger wrapped in cheap swaddling clothes. And it happened on one holy and blessed night. And I imagine on that night, the trees stood a little taller. The wind blew just the perfect amount of breeze. The moon shone a little brighter. The flowers perked up a little broader. The stars twinkled a little faster. Because the creator was in their midst. And this holy child lay quiet and still in the arms of a teenage mom under the watchful eye of a nervous earthly father. <laughs> the cooing baby is laying in the middle of mooing cows and bleeding sheep. But salvation had come. The answer had arrived. He was here. But how do we know that he was really the one? I mean, how can we know for certain that this little baby is the Messiah? Well, you know, there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that foretold the coming of Christ. Everything from he'll be born of a virgin to he'll be born in Bethlehem and all these things, all right? 300 prophecies. Well, <laughs> several years back, and you'll find this information, by the way, in Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, a mathematician by the name of Bill Perkins just decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to try to figure out what are the probabilities of not just one man fulfilling all 300 prophecies. What are the prophecies, what are the probabilities that Jesus really is the Messiah? He said, no, 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 that's impossible to figure. So I'm just gonna try to do the math on what if, he, what if one person just fulfilled eight of the 300 prophecies, just eight of the 300 prophecies. By the way, does anybody in here have a silver dollar, the old-fashioned kind, not the small kind that looked like a quarter, but the old-fashioned, anybody have one on them? Anybody? If you do, shout it out, okay. We're all too modern for that anymore, I think. 
I know my friend Doug Pickerel used to carry one all the time in his, in his pocket because he gave me several of them. Now I've lost them. I don't know where they went. But I do have one of the newer ones. This is the Susan B. Anthony uh, Silver Dollar. But the older ones were just a little bit bigger than this. All right, now this is the illustration, all right? This mathematician somehow, way, figured out that if you were to cover the entire state of Texas, Texas is big, okay? That's why they say things like, yeah, as big as Texas, because Texas really is big. I just drove it across it a few months ago. I promise you, it is big. If you were to take the entire state of Texas and cover it in two feet of silver dollars, two feet thick, all right? That would take over a hundred trillion silver dollars. And if you were to take a marker and put an X on one of those silver dollars, just one, and then if you were to stir up all those two feet thick of silver dollars all over the state of Texas and put that one silver dollar with an X somewhere in the middle of Texas, and then if you were to blindfold Kenny over here and say, Kenny, you get one shot. With a blindfold on, grab the silver dollar with the X. Do you know what the chances of him actually picking the right silver dollar would be? It'd be one in 10 to the 17th power. That's the calculation of what it would take for one person to be able to fulfill just eight of the 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. For that one person to fulfill eight of the Old Testament prophecies, it would literally be one in 10 to the 17th power. That's what that number looks like. That's a big old honking number. So virtually impossible. Well, can you imagine if somebody fulfilled all 300 prophecies? It's literally a number that you can't even calculate. And yet Jesus fulfilled every one, every single one of them. Why? Because Jesus was the creator of it all. He, he's the author of the whole thing. He's the one who set the whole thing up. This is his story, not ours. So the true Messiah had come, but the same one who came is also the same one who's with us today. And I think sometimes we tend to glory so much in the past of Christmas that we forget that God is a very present God. He is here as much now as he was then. Maybe not in physical form, but even more powerfully in the form of his Holy Spirit. It's wonderful to celebrate Christmas and what happened 2,000 years ago, but and, 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 and rightly so. I mean, it's the greatest story ever told. But don't forget, Christmas is not about presence under the tree. It's about his presence with us right now. So there are Christmas presents that we give to each other. And then there's Christmas presents, God's gift to us. Now, there's never a moment where we're not in God's presence, right? But his presence and the manifestation of his presence are two different things. Now, I'm going to go a little deeper here just for a moment with you because this is important. Listen to the words of A.W. Tozer. God is here when we are not even aware of it. Would you agree with that? All right. But he is manifest only when and as we are aware of his presence. On our part, there must be a surrender to the Spirit of God for his work it is to show us the Father and the Son. Now, if we cooperate with him in loving obedience, God will manifest himself to us, and that manifestation will be the difference between a nominal Christian life and a life radiant <laughs> with the light of his face. In other words, it's those of us who encounter a manifest spirit of God that really understand what it is to draw close to him. Uh, I'll give you this example. I, uh, I think that 
when we turn towards God, he turns towards us. And there are moments when his presence literally changes the atmosphere in the room. Would you agree with that? There are moments when we're worshiping the Lord when you sense a difference in the atmosphere. And it's because the Holy Spirit has begun to manifest himself among us. So much so that I believe even those who don't know God or are far from him, recognize it. They may not be able to define it, but they recognize something is clearly different about what's happening in the room. Have you experienced moments like that? Let me tell you about one I had. I was, in, I, was in, uh, I was fresh out of college. I was 23 years old, and I was asked to participate on a compilation Christmas CD and, uh, for, for uh, I think it was muscular dystrophy, and it was a little fundraising CD that we had done in Birmingham, Alabama. Well, the night came when we were going to do the big celebration and the big reveal and kind of the, you know, the live concert featuring all the songs on the record. Well, there was very few sacred Christmas songs on this project. It was all kind of stuff, you know, like I saw Mama kissing Santa Claus and bells would be ringing and all this kind of stuff, right? Jingle Bell Rock. And it was fun. And it was a really pro- a fun project to be a part of. But the, the night we were going to do the reveal party was at Louie Louie's in Birmingham, Alabama. That's, that's like one of the most notorious bars in the city of, of Birmingham, right? I'd never been in a bar in my life, let alone sung in one. So this is going to be interesting. And, of course, my song of choice, Oh Holy Night. So in the middle of this raucous party, my turn came to come and sing Oh Holy Night. And when I started singing, y'all, it was an amazing thing to witness, the crazy crowd at Louie Louie's, a hush came over that crowd. And when I finished singing, Oh Holy Night, with the gospel so clearly presented in this song, I'll never forget that moment because we all just stood there and even the lost of the lost in Louie Louie's knew that the presence of a holy God was in the room. That's what I mean by the manifest presence of the Lord. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. When the Holy Spirit begins to manifest himself in your presence, he begins to do a work on your soul. What's the soul? Well, the soul is the very essence of who we are and the spirit of, what, of, of that part of us that connects us with God. And this, for the soul to feel its worth, it must be awakened spiritually and our eyes open to the very reason we were created to begin with. Remember, all things were created by him and for him. You have a soul. And so many of us, time to, we try to find our worth in, in what we do. You know, I mean, we, we spend our lives working on the outside and we, and we spend time working on our appearance and, or our money or our accomplishments or our possessions and and none of this brings any worth to our soul. And when we die, you take none of that with you. But we're obsessed with our outside appearance rather than the health of our soul. And we think that a change to our outer world, like a change in career or a change in marital status or whatever, maybe that'll bring me peace and prosperity. When, when most of the time it just adds to the chaos and the confusion of an already noisy and too busy life. Folks, inner peace is much more about who you are than what you accomplish or what you do. And who you are is a soul created for the purpose of bringing glory to God in and through everything you do. Listen to the teaching of this incredible scholar, Dallas Willard. He says this, why is there such value and mystery to your existence? The really deep reason is because of this tiny, fragile, vulnerable, precious thing about you called your soul. And you're not just a self, you're a soul. 
The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. You are a soul made by God, made for God, and made to need God, which means you're not made to be self-sufficient. So what's running your life in any given moment is your soul, not your external circumstances or your thoughts or your intentions or your feelings, but your soul. So the soul is that aspect of your whole being that correlates and integrates and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of yourself. The soul is the life center of every human being. And maybe you're here today and you feel weak or you feel, you feel worthless or you feel like you have no importance or you're just a number amongst seven billion people on this planet. But there's a difference, folks, between being worthy and having worth. I don't need to remind you, I don't think, none of us are worthy of what Jesus did for us. None of us are worthy of that. I mean, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 says. So none of us are worthy, but all of us have worth. You see the difference? Do you see how much your soul has worth? You were worth the cross to Jesus. <laughs> he came to change you on the inside, to change you who you are. And until you allow him to do this, your soul will always be restless. And restless leads to weariness. We live in a tired and overworked and overly active society. So in order to get our souls back into a healthy place, we need to find rest and we need to take care of our souls with plenty of time spent in the word and with the Lord. And I love these words from, from Dallas Willard. He said, in order to have a healthy soul, we must work to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. I don't know about you, but this is the most hurried time of the year for me. And it seems like I'm just going from city to city and running around and doing this and doing that and party to party and all this kind of activities and stuff. And it just gets a crazy time of year. And I just want to encourage you this Christmas season to discipline yourself to leave a little earlier, prepare just a little better, so that you get rid of hurry in your life. This will allow you time to get away and just sit and contemplate on the wonderful story of the Savior. It will restore to you the joy of your salvation and renew for you a thrill of hope. So he is here. And the more time you spend with him, the more you discover that he's the one who can fill that space between who you are now and who you are created to be. So he is holy, and he is here. Can I give you just one more? He is hope. He is hope. The story of Christmas is filled with hope. A thrill of hope, the song says. Not hope for just the moment, but hope for eternity, right? So what's hope? Well, Tertullian says, hope is patience with the lamp lit. I like that, but I kind of came up with my own definition of hope. Maybe I could just define it for you this way. Hope is the motel six of virtues. It always leaves the light on. Folks, we can survive a long time without food. We can even survive a few days without water. You can't survive one moment without hope. Listen to what Max Lucado said. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's the unshakable confidence that God can be trusted. It's the belief that God is always at work for our good. It's the assurance that God's promises are true even while we wait for their fulfillment. Because our hope is certain, we wait patiently, not fretfully, trusting that God is always at work to provide the light that we seek, the help that we need, and the deliverance 
we long for. Folks, Jesus is the light that we seek, isn't he? Jesus is the help that we need. Jesus is the deliverance that we long for. So this hope is thrilling because of the confidence and the salvation that it brings. It's not a false hope. I'll tell you what a false hope is. Being a Dallas Cowboy fan and hoping they win the Super Bowl for the last 24 years, that's a false hope. You cannot rest your salvation or your future on a false hope. And yet people all over this country, people all over this city are resting their, their confidence in a hope that, that may or may not ever come to fruition. Oh, but folks, Jesus is not a false hope. He is the great creator who gave us the promise of his coming, which he did, fulfilled over 300 prophecies exactly to the T like he promised he would. And that same Jesus is the same one who's promised us a home in heaven if we'll just surrender our lives to him. Now, if he can fulfill all 300 of those prophecies to the T, don't you think he'll keep his promises on the backside of this deal as well? Yes, he will. Yes, he will. So we don't place our hope in something that has no foundation. No, Jesus is the foundation of our hope, and it's based on an absolute truth. Romans 15, 13 says this, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Oh, folks, the world is weary. The world is tired and stressed and worn out from worry and weakened by sin and distracted by this endless pursuit of pleasure. But the hope of Jesus brings joy and peace in the midst of all of that. And with that hope comes everlasting love, unexplainable peace, a joy that lasts forever, and freedom from sin and bondage. Verse 3 of that great Carol says this, truly he taught us to love one another and his law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. Folks, that's right out of Isaiah chapter 61. It's right out of Luke chapter four when Jesus got in the synagogue and he stood up there in front of all these people, people that he'd known since he was a little child growing up in Nazareth. And he stands up in front of them, quotes Isaiah 61 and he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the scroll, sat down and he said these words, today this scripture is fulfilled right in your hearing. In other words, I'm right here. I'm in the mood. I'm in the room. Hope has arrived. All you got to do is believe. So maybe you're here today and your heart is hopeless and you feel empty and you feel like your life has no meaning or, or purpose. Please look no further than Jesus. He's the one who can give you hope. He's the space between the throes of despair and the thrill of hope. The space is filled with Jesus. And the space between your reality and your expectations can be filled only with the hope of Jesus. And when you finally come to the place where you realize this and accept it, 
He'll come into your life and he'll save you and he will rescue you and he will change you and your response to him will be like the response of millions who have gone before you and millions who have gathered in churches all over the world today. Your response will be worship and praise. Oh, that this weary world might someday rejoice in the sweet and precious presence of the Savior for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. He's worthy of our praise. Fall on your knees. Hear the angel voices. Oh, night divine let the sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we let all that is within us praise his holy name for christ is the lord oh praise his name forever his name and his glory evermore proclaim it can we give god praise this morning he's worthy isn't he i'm sorry i've been waiting a week to get that out of me In 1906, a 33-year-old professor by the name of Reginald Fessenden, he was experimenting with a new way to broadcast radio transmission. He'd already done a whole lot to help the Morse code be a little more audible and more definable. And up to this point, they were only able to transmit in ways of dots and dashes. And yet this man, Reginald Fessenden, was obsessed with being able to get us to the point to where instead of just dots and dashes, we were actually able to transmit a human voice. And after much experimentation, after trial and error for years, he finally was ready. And so on Christmas Eve, 1906, for the first time in the history of mankind, through a crackly little microphone in a little place called Blant Rock, Massachusetts, the first ever radio broadcast was heard. And he decided to wait until Christmas Eve because he decided that the first thing he wanted the whole world to hear was the Christmas story. And so he began to read from Luke chapter 2. And then he passed the microphone to his assistant, Mr. Stein, who was going to read a few verses. And Mr. Stein freaked out. He couldn't do it. He got mic fright. So he, he passed the mic to Mr. Fessenden's wife. And she got about three words out, and she freaked out because they realized that what they're doing here is something that's never been done. Nobody's ever heard any voice over a radio transmission before. And so she shoves the mic back in the face of Professor Fessenden, and he finishes the story out of Luke chapter 2. And then when he finished, he picked up his own violin and he began to play a Christmas carol. Well, by now, I'm sure you know what that Christmas carol was. Oh, Holy Night. Did you know that Oh, Holy Night is the very first song ever to be heard in the history of mankind on the radio? Oh, Holy Night. Now, isn't that just like God? Mm. So, in the space between that old microphone and the hearts of the people hearing the voice on the radio for the first time came the wondrous story of the coming of Christ and that precious song, O Holy Night. O Holy Night has quite a history and it's blessed the hearts of untold millions, but so much more, infinitely more, is the story from which O Holy Night is written. That's the story that changes lives. We can live without the hymn. 
we cannot live without Jesus. So the space between your eternal hope and eternal despair is bridged by Jesus, by his cross, his blood, his sacrifice, his grace, his mercy. He's holy. He is here. He is hope. And in the space between what happened in a lowly manger over 2,000 years ago until this morning, right here in Lynchburg, Virginia, in that space screams the undeniable one big loud message of Christmas. Here it is. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved. Will you bow your heads with me, please? And in the quiet of this moment, I'm going to ask that nobody move, nobody get up and walk around. I'm just going to ask you if you would, maybe for the first time in weeks, take a moment and just reflect on who he is. Worship the Holy Savior. Know that his presence is here and in this room. And if you're here today and you are hopeless, know that Jesus is the answer. I'm going to ask you if you would, very quietly to stand. And with the heads bowed and eyes closed, we're going to go back to 1906. I've asked Miss Albers if she would just to simply play that great old Christmas carol just the way they heard it for the first time on the radio in 1906. And as she plays, I'm going to just remind you that our pastors are here at the front. This altar is open. But of all the moments this week, would you just do yourself a favor and just seek the Lord? Ask him to speak to you right now.
We want to take this opportunity to thank you for joining us here today. You know, at Thomas Road Baptist Church, since our very beginning, back in 1956, we've been about one thing and one thing only, and that is to bring the message of hope that comes through Jesus Christ to the world. And today, my friends, we recognize we live in a world that's messed up. We live in a world that's full of division and conflict and pain and sorrow. But Jesus came to this world not to bring division and sorrow, but to bring joy, to bring peace, to bring hope. And today, that's the message that we want to share with you. And if you're watching this and you've never had the opportunity of, of connecting with him at that level, of understanding what it is that Jesus came to do, then I encourage you and I want to let you know the greatest news you'll ever hear. And that's this, God loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. In fact, he gave his only son, Jesus, to come to this earth to die on the cross, to pay for your sins and for my sins, to do for us what we never could do for ourselves. What an amazing gift that really is. God loves you. Christ died for you. But three days later, he rose again. And when he came out of that grave, he gives us victory over sin, over Satan, over the grave. He gives us the hope for eternity. But according to God's words, very clear. What we must do is believe. We must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We must believe that He died and that He rose again. And if we do that, according to Romans 10, 13, anyone, that means you, it means me, it means every person that has ever lived, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I encourage you today to recognize that hope that comes through Jesus. And if you've never trusted Him as your Lord and Savior, do so today believing that he is who he said he is, that he did what he said that he did, calling on his name, and it'll change everything. That is the message that we share. It's a message that we want to take to the entire world. And today I would encourage you to connect with us, maybe even financially through a gift that you can help us to take this message around the world. I encourage you today to stand with us as we stand with truth, as we stand with hope, to let the world know God loves. Thank you.